I'm Paul Brady, and this is my podcast, A Northern Wine Odyssey, part of the Cork Report Podcast Network. To listen, search Cork Report in your podcast app of choice, Spotify, Apple, Google, and more. Today, we're talking about wine competitions. Do we like them? Do we hate them? Are they useful? Who are they useful for? The consumer, the trade. We try to get to the bottom of some of that and come to a a conclusion that I think uh, my guests and I are both satisfied with for the moment, but we also agree there should be some more discourse on this subject. So joining me, my friend, wine writer, Carrie Dykes. Here we go. to a Northern Wine Odyssey. I was away for a little bit, traveling, uh, a little bit of of work stuff, a little bit of vacation, and I'm very happy to be back. Welcoming Carrie Dykes to speak with me today, my neighbor just down the Hudson River a little bit. Carrie, what's going on? Hey, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. We are are day after uh, Hurricane Henri. Yeah. It, I I mean, you're right across the river from me. I don't know if you got much more, but we didn't see anything more than, you know, just a bunch of rain. Yeah, no, that it wasn't even like that much rain. I feel like just kind of norm, normal rain early in the summer was more intense mm-hmm. than that. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I do know that there are a number of people without power uh, in various places. So yeah, uh, that sucks. And certainly we hope everyone's all right. Yeah, yeah. But I did talk to um, one or two people out on Long Island and, and uh, over closer to the Cape, and everyone seems fine. Yeah. I mean, I think they definitely got a bit more water than us, but <laughs> at least it wasn't super tragic as it well could have been. Yes, that is true. Um, what's good? What have uh, you been doing? Just trying to see as many people as possible uh, after not seeing people for so long. And, you know, summer things, camping, um, professionally, did a little bit of wine judging, which we'll talk about, of course, and uh, doing some writing. How about you? uh, Well, before we get to me, where has uh, the summer taken you? Where was the camping? Where was the wine judging? Let's see. Nothing too <laughs> too crazy. Um, went family camping uh, in coastal Delaware, which was really nice. That was like the very beginning of the summer. And I then, think I saw some photographs of that. I've always been sort of interested. Like Delaware is a pretty small state, and there's like not that much coast. But then I see these really beautiful photos of people hanging out there. Yeah, it was nice. I mean, I. As far as I can recall, I have not, you know, been to a coastal Delaware beach before, but it was super nice. Um, And it wasn't like blazing hot yet, which was awesome. And uh, yeah, then later on, I went to Hot Springs, Arkansas, which is really cool. It's uh, this town that geothermal waters flow through underneath. And so there are all these like old timey spas and uh, just really cool stuff. Like the brewery uses the geothermal waters to make their beer. Um, it's It was awesome. 
And wow. uh, how, how, how did you end up down there? It was a press trip, actually. And this one company that does these press trips, they're mainly in the US and they're mainly kind of like places you may not have heard of before. And uh, I've been on three trips with them and each one is like, oh, I've never heard of that place, but sure, let's go. And it's turned out to be really cool. That is, that does sound cool. Um, I mean, Arkansas and that part of the South in general is definitely an area that I would be up for exploring more. So what, uh, what have you been drinking either, either at home or, or on the road? I'm working on a story for the Vintner project and it's about the like alluring notes and things that come about from Malbec Malbec based rosés. So I've definitely been drinking um, a few of those uh, in preparation for this article. And, you know, I'm not mad at it. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, Tis the season. I mean, there's, there's been some rosé, um, although it's, I don't know, my, my wine drinking sort of preferences kind of ebb and flow a little bit. I, yeah. I liked, I'm at a point, I think with, with a lot of us where I'm, I'm drinking rosé kind of year round mm-hmm. and I'm also drinking <laughs> reds year round. Uh, I love chilled reds, which totally. you probably do too. And the funny thing is, is that I, I do find myself drinking less white wine hmm. because it's sort of like rosés have graduated to year round. Totally. Right? Uh, and reds have become such that we can pretty much always find those light snappy reds that uh, we tend to like. Uh, and drink them with a chill on it all summer. So, like, where does that leave white wines for me? Sometimes they get left out. I mean, it, it, I feel like my tasting and consumption of white wine is often in a, a, a setting of assessment. Hmm. That's interesting. I guess maybe if you were looking for something with, like, zero tannic expression. I don't know. <laughs> I I mean, I don't know that I'm ever looking for that. Um <laughs> I mean, I like, you know, a little phenolic ripeness from white wine, but I, I mean, I was, I should add to, uh, you know, just to, to let you know what I've been up to. So the last week I was in Martha's Vineyard, which mm-hmm. was cool. So I had never been there. My girlfriend's family rents a house there every year. Ooh. And uh, so this was my first time going out with them. And so there was, of course, a lot of seafood and we, we, brought some white wine, some, some Muscadet and a couple other f- fun things that we had from, from places like Spain. And, and uh, I, mean, yeah, I mean, that was great. And, and that was kind of when I realized that I was like, you know, I really just don't drink that much white wine, but like when you're in the land of seafood and it, it just kind of make, makes a lot of sense. So it was uh, yeah. fun to drink, to drink some Muscadet. And I, I, sort of realized, I was like, you know, I really just don't drink that much white wine. I feel like I'm tasting Rieslings all the time, but like tasting and yeah. spitting. Uh, and then of course there's sparkling wines, which I, I tend to drink a lot of, and those check a lot of the boxes, but I don't know, for whatever reason, I just haven't had the like craving for white wine, but maybe as I get into the fall, I'll start wanting those, some of those aromatic whites that I, I like and that I think are sort of seasonally good for the fall, like, like Rieslings and Gewurz and Muscat and stuff like that. Totally. I mean, it definitely goes hand in hand with, you know, weather and what you're eating with it and just kind of situational. So maybe you'll come back around. (laughs) 
All right. Like, is this crazy? Does this sound crazy to you? Are you like a habitual white wine drinker? No, it's kind of funny. Like when I first got into wine, I barely ever drank white. Um, And then it kind of like totally flip-flopped where I was barely drinking any reds. But now there's so, like you were saying, there's so many things that kind of serve like a middle ground purpose, like a chillable red or, you know, a heartier rosé that you can totally drink in the middle of winter that, um, yeah, I, I feel like I, I gravitate more towards those middle wines. Um, but again, it, it changes. Like sometimes if I'm like out, I'm having a steak, like, yeah, I might want a bigger red. It's not my usual go-to, but in those certain instances, it makes sense. Yeah. And then of course, you know, there's beer and cocktails and right. And all all that fun stuff. So I'm I'm there there are so many different ways to be satiated and uh sorry white wine, but um <laughs> you know <laughs> um maybe maybe I'll get back to you as we as we get into the fall. So uh, how how are yeah. your wines? Did, what kind of white wines are you making? Ah, that's a good question. I mean, we so yeah, so I I, I Gather what you're asking about is uh, for for our business that um, is going to be opened uh, in this fall. We hope uh, October, which is um, the business is simply my name, Paul Brady Wines, and that's going to be in Beacon, New York. We'll we'll announce more little by little uh, as we get closer to the opening. But yeah, I do have a white wine that that we made, and I guess th- this is as good a time as any to to tease it out. It is white wine from the Finger Lakes. It's not a Riesling, but there is some Riesling in it. It's a blend uh, of mostly Gewürztraminer and then Riesling and Chardonnay. Ah. So I, I don't want to reveal the 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 source yet. Um, we're kind of saving that as uh, as ammunition for our, our our PR around the opening. But um, I mean, I, it, everybody makes. There are so many good Rieslings, right? So rather than make another one. I thought, why don't we see what we can achieve by blending? Um, and I do think that white uh, blends could uh, could really see some action in in the not so distant future here in New York as a, as a category. So that's what we did to just to try to offer something different. Cool. I mean, I think sounds really great. You know, you have the acidity of the riesling, and you know, kind of that like gorgeous, you know, enticing aroma of the Gewurztraminer. I'm excited about it. Yeah, it's 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 not really like an in your face Gewurz, you yeah. know. It but there is definitely that character there, sort of the texture and the aromatics from the Gewurz and then yeah, like you said, Riesling for for that backbone of acidity and then some Chardonnay again to sort of neutralize and pull it all together. Um so it ends up tasting just like a kind of a very minerally um high acid uh, fruit forward blend. Ooh, that sounds exactly up my alley. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely get you some, uh, All right. when, when we're, when we're ready for that. Cool. Um, okay. Well let's, let's talk about, um, sort of the world of wines through the lens of competitions. Cause we've both been at a couple of them recently, but I want to get, I want to talk to you about your sort of early days in competition judging and how you got into that side of the industry first. Sure. Um, let's see. Because you are a, you're a certified competition judge. I'm actually not. I'm not I, at I, all. I thought that you were. I don't know mm-hmm. why I thought that. 
No, I mean, okay. I do, I do a lot of, I do a lot of judging. So, um, I could see why you might think that, but I kind of fell into it and I have thought about taking, you know, taking that route and, um, you know, doing that course to get certified, but I'm kind of like, well, I already judge so much. I don't know if it makes sense right now, but I, I think just for c- the sake of learning, which I do enjoy, I might do it down the line. Um, so that, so how, how did it come to be such that you are judging a lot? So how, how did you get into it? It start my first judging that I ever did was uh, when I was at Wine Enthusiast. I was so I, you know, I, I know how to do the systematic approach to tasting from you know W set, and uh, I was working as a reviewer at Wine Enthusiast. So um, a few people that worked there were asked to judge for the Saint Chinian, um, like Von Virtuos, I think it was called. It's pretty much where they want people to judge like their best, uh, vintage of each wine. So, um, I just really loved it. I, I loved kind of, uh, the conversations that happen at each table, um, and the back and forth. And I feel like you learn so much about, you know, analytically looking at a wine versus looking at it, um, through like your own preference. Um, so from there, I, through a friend, uh, got introduced to IWSC in London and I judged for them. Actually, it was today, three years ago. <laughs> I just got a Facebook notification. Um, and that was really cool. And that's, you know, that's one of the bigger ones where you'll definitely see those medals on a lot of wines. Um, so that was a great experience. And, uh, and then from there, I got introduced to Concours Mondial, and they do a bunch of different competitions around the world. And that was just, I feel like each one I do gets more incredible. Like it's just, I meet so many incredible people and go to cool places and just learn so much about all different types of wine. Um, and then I've done a lot of local, like hyper-local even contests like the New York Classic, uh, the Big E, which is all East Coast. What else? And then just recently, this summer, I did uh, one for Winemaker Magazine, which was really interesting. We could talk about that a little later because I feel like I've been blabbing, but it was a hobbyist wine contest. So I feel like I walked away from that contest learning more than I have at, you know, any other (laughs) It was, it was very interesting. Okay. So, all right. That, that's, um, that's a lot of good stuff to get us going here. So I I kind of understand why we like to, to judge in competitions. It, it, I didn't understand that in the beginning when I, when I first was involved Mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I remember hearing different judges, just in casual conversation talking like, Oh yeah, I didn't, didn't do it last year. wasn't invited, but you know, was invited back this year. And I was kind of bummed that I wasn't invited, you know, last year and hope I get invited back. And I, in the beginning I was always like, why is it so important for, to, to, to be invited? Like, what is it that people like so much about doing these competitions? Because for the most part, you know, we're not, we're not being paid we often are traveling somewhere. So it, it is coming sort of down to our own personal time. Mm-hmm. And you it's not easy work. 
either. It's a brutal amount of wine. Yeah. Um, and it's early mornings. It's, you know, work in, work in, you know, tasting wine pretty much nonstop, you know, a little lunch break into the late afternoon, maybe two or three days in a row. And, but then I got to, the more I was involved, I sort of figured it out. Well, I was like, really, it's, it's something to, it's kind of a nice group of people mm-hmm. that, that gets together, especially if you've done it a few times and you, you start to, to know the organizers and know the other judges who are regularly involved and things like that. So now I get it. I, I get it now. It's, it's usually a very cool group of people um, that, you know, sometimes you already know ahead of time or that you maybe have only, maybe you only ever see at that competition. So to me, it seems like most of us kind of like it because um, there, there's a nice group of people involved and certainly a ton of wine. I mean, if you're a tasting junkie, a competition, there, there's mm-hmm. maybe nothing better, right? Yeah. I mean, like walk around tastings are, are great, um, I suppose. But if you're, I mean, there are some of us in this industry that we don't love tasting hundreds of wines a day, or maybe we don't need to do that. We've figured out other ways to taste and acquire wines for our various businesses or or careers, and we don't need to be tasting hundreds and hundreds of wines. But then there are some people who just love that. Like that's they're in their element when they just get to go off and taste a ton of wines. And I, I certainly know some of those people. What category do you fall into? I guess I so fall... I'm not a I'm not a hyper taster. Yeah, I mean tasting like hundreds of wine that's a little too much. It, that's like major palate fatigue. But I feel like most organizations they do a good job of breaking things up. Like I would say, you know, if you're going to taste like forty to fifty wines a day, that's kind of the sweet spot. Fifty to seventy, you see that a lot. Um, and that's doable, but it, it's kind of getting to the point where you're like, I don't know, maybe doing a disservice to some of the wines you taste at the end or like, you know, so it's, uh, I mean, I would say if I had my choice around 30 to 50 a day would be good. You know, I feel like I'm still learning a lot. I feel like, you know, my palate is like on point. I haven't had palate fatigue yet. Um, And it's interesting. Some of the better organizations uh, that I've judged for, they, they have little, I don't know, little things that they do. Like Concours Mondial, they'll put two of the same wines in different flights throughout the day. And if you're like wildly off, like say you give like, it goes from, the scoring goes from 80 to 100. Say you gave it like an 82 in the afternoon and uh, then later on you give it a 92, uh, you know, then they're kind of looking at you like, ah, this is not consistent. Either we need to taste less wine or maybe it's, maybe you're the issue (laughs) type of thing. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've heard of things like that. I don't know that I've ever been in an, a judge in a competition that does something like that. But that's, I mean, that that could be very telling and very useful for the organizers. Yeah. How was it? You were just in Michigan. How was that? It was great. It it, it was a little bit different from some of the other competitions that that I think we've both been involved with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of I kind of want to uh, ease into that. So let's 
talk about some some competition, some wine judging competition sort of formalities. Sure. Because I'm curious to get your take as to how these might differ from competition to competition. But I have seen some consistency in that there is sometimes this sort of group approach that is encouraged by the organizers of the competition to sort of get your table of judges mm-hmm. on the same page. Yes, absolutely. From wine to wine. So you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Can you say a little bit about that? I would just love to hear it from, you know, in your voice so some of the listeners kind of know what I'm talking about. So let's say uh, you're in a table of five. Sometimes there's a head of a table kind of, you know, he's in charge or he or she is in charge of making sure that everyone's calibrated and, you know, kind of on the same page. So after you do a calibration wine to kind of make sure that um, everyone's somewhat in check with each other. And then as you do the flights, say we all judge a wine and, you know, someone at the table judges really low, but everyone else judges higher or, you know, someone judges really high, someone judges really low and everyone else is in the middle. Um, The head of the table will try to get the high person to come down and the low person to come up so we can meet in the middle. And some organizations will even make it a rule that you have to be within five points of each other or four points, something like that. Or maybe usually it's wider, I guess. And I, I'm not really sure how I feel about that. I mean, I think it's good to have a conversation about that wine and really, really, um, make sure that everyone's understanding why this person scored so low, why this person scored so high, and then maybe reassess and maybe meet in the middle. But to force it, I'm not really cool with that. Yeah. And there, there seems to be also a a motive for competition organizers to sometimes let you know, Hey, you're just to, so you know, your table's, um, giving out a lot of you know bronze medals, let's say, or your table is get, is not giving that many medals because that's usually an option, which yeah. is to sort of just give a pass to a line and not not awarded a medal. Or it could be that boy, you you sure are giving a lot of golds, yeah, know, or a lot of so whatever it is, it seems to be sort of frowned upon if you are in one camp for too long, whether that's given out a bunch of no medals or too many golds or just a lot of bronzes. It does feel like there is a temptation sometimes to not want to go too high or too low. So you end up giving a lot of, you know, bronze plus silver minus. Right. Just right in the middle. Yeah. And so I can see how that would not really be encouraging to, to competition organizers, but I'm not sure that I want really to to be told right. how, how I should assess a wine. And I don't know that I want to be told to level up if it's something that I really don't feel confident in doing. But, but there does seem to be that, uh, at least with some of the competitions I've been involved with, this encouragement to almost like you know, if two of you are giving something a bronze and one person has a silver, well, then maybe, you know, the, the two people giving a bronze need to consider, should it be a silver? And that's 
that's where I, I think things start to become complicated because there's pressure, whether it be from other judges or from organizers to influence your decision. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of, I, I don't know that that in our time and place right now is the way to assess wine. What do you think about that? Oh, I totally agree. Uh, it's, it, you know, the whole impetus of these competitions, well, I guess, you know, I guess you could say it's because these wineries want medals. Um, but on the other hand, it's also, I'm sure they want a true assessment of their wine, right? Um, <laughs> that's why they paid money to be in the competition. So I don't know if, if a judge is there because they have the credentials and they know what they're doing, then I feel like they shouldn't have to budge on something if it makes them uncomfortable. But like I said, a healthy conversation to see like, Oh, let me go back and reassess and I'll see how I feel. I'm fine with that. I, you know, I'm always down to give something a second chance. Um, but yeah, to pressure a judge about it, I, I don't really like that. Well, and I think that it bears mentioning that there is a, a competition entrance fee for yes. wineries and competitions can depending on which ones can be profitable for the organizers. So it certainly behooves the organizers to encourage meddling because that's going to encourage wineries to send more of their wines of because that's going to gain more competition fees for for the organizers. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit different I think that let's talk about uh, wine enthusiast or wine publications in general that that give scores mm-hmm. is there so it, in, you know during your time at wine enthusiast was there a fee for a winery to submit a wine to to be reviewed no no there's no fee um, I don't know about other publications but I'm pretty positive that spectator and all the you know the bigger ones there's no fee um, but it also it's not guaranteed that your wine will be reviewed. And it's obviously not guaranteed how your wine is going to be reviewed. And um, so when a wine is reviewed, it's very, very um, objective, analytical. Uh, It's blind, of course, double blind tasting. And uh, yeah, it's kind of you're throwing your wines out there to get a real assessment. And, you know, sometimes it's not the best and wineries do get upset but it's different from meddling because yeah, there's no fee and it's, it's rating for the sake of a true assessment. Yeah. Well, I think it, it, uh, it's interesting because there are certain publications, like you mentioned that you do not, if you're a winery, you don't need to pay a fee to submit your wine for review, whether that's a magazine or, or online publication or whatever. And not all of them are done blind either. I know that there's right, yeah. defi- definitely at least a couple big ones um, of which the, the critic may even just go to the winery, taste with the winemaker or grower and write their notes and score the wines. And sometimes that's just how it goes. And of course, famously, if we go back to the early days of Robert Parker uh, and the wine advocate, they didn't even accept advertisement. Right. So it was, and I believe they purchased all the wine. They never accepted samples even oh, wow. for review. Um, that was sort of what he was famous for, that um, all the wine that he reviewed for the wine advocate was purchased. And if anybody did send him wine, 
that was meant to be reviewed, they would make a donation to a charity or something like that for the for the amount of the wine. Um, wow. So there there have been all sorts of different ways that critics uh, are are assessing wine, whether it's blind, whether it's been paid for or or whatever. But the one thing that seems different from publications to competitions is that it does seem like competitions want to encourage meddling. And I I, I don't know why that is good for anyone other than the competition. Yeah. Well, and the wineries. (laughs) Um, Right. But if it's a, if it, if it's a, you know, an unfair assessment, if it's a, a a participation trophy merely, mm -hmm. that may not be good for the winery in the end. True. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think it's just kind of the way things are, unfortunately. But as judges, I think the best thing to do is just to go in there and stick to your guns and, you know, assess as analytically as possible. Uh, And I don't know, maybe these competitions need to, you know, think about not having uh, a threshold that you have to all come in, you know, to meet. Because it just makes, yeah, it makes it a little awkward, a little icky. Uh, one thing that was kind of an interesting uh, way to mix things up, as you were saying before, like, oh, your table, you're given a lot of bronze, you know, stuff like that. Um, and if it is, you know, that kind of situation going on, the competition I just did uh, about a month ago, I guess, they would have you switch tables every couple flights. So you're with all different people. And not only was it interesting because you learned so much from everyone you're with. Um, you also got to know more people that way, but, um, and everyone has different judging styles. So I feel like it made the whole thing more balanced in a way. Yeah. Um, that sounds more balanced and just, yeah, more maybe fair. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about like a table just, you know, pumping out golds or not giving any medals because, then those people are going to be with, you know, maybe the all gold table is going to disperse and, you know, an all gold person is going to be with a no metal person. And I don't know, it just seemed like a good way to kind of put together a a judging to make it a little bit more equal. I like that. Yeah. There, I mean, there are, there are, you know, the, I think the reason we're, that I wanted to have this conversation with you is because there are people that feel very strongly about how competitions should or should not be run. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that it because of that reason, we're at a point where it deserves a little bit more discourse mm-hmm. um, because I just as, as everything is changing, the way that we purchase wine, the way that we experience wine, the way that uh, the restaurant industry is, is changing and the way that we're all sort of growing into a different style of wine, hospitality and sales, whether that be because of the pandemic or just technology. I think, uh, I think right now we're, we're at a place where we, we should be talking about competitions because I think competitions are cool and I think that they get a bad rap. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that a lot of young wine professionals are, are not involved. I think that they're not involved because someone said that competitions aren't cool or someone said that, you know, assessing and scoring wines for points or medals um, is, is not cool. And I think that it is cool. And I, I, I want to promote competitions and I want this 
sort of sector of the industry to remain alive. And maybe, you know, we can all just keep talking and, and hoping that, uh, that these things remain great or even get better. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about some of the recent competitions that we, that we've been involved with. So I, I did two this year. Uh, oh. One was uh, the Finger Lakes International. And then the other one was the Michigan one, which is called the, what was called the judgment. Uh, was it called the judgment of Michigan? Something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and both were a little bit different. So the Finger Lakes International is a, a competition that I've done. This is the third year uh, that I was involved as a judge. And I love this competition because it is a fun, it's a fundraiser for Camp Good Days, which is a summer camp for children and their families um, who have cancer. Oh so it's a it's wonderful, amazing. wonderful cause. And there are auctions that happen um, that wines are donated to, and there, there's the competition, and, and there's just a, a number of different ways that um, you know through the wine industry we're, uh, we're sort of raising money for this um, you know greatest of all causes sort of. Yeah. And so I like doing that one. That one has been around a while. It, there are lots of judges who have done it many years, um, and it's like I said, there's really you, you can't come up with a better cause. So I will I will continue to do it for as as long as they invite me. In that one, I do feel that there is that sort of push to have camaraderie as a table of judges and to really try to be on that same page in terms of uh, the medals. Mm-hmm. Now, the Michigan competition, on the other hand, this was a brand new aggregate. So there used to be a competition in Michigan that was sort of the official state wine competition. And it was, I believe, run by what is now called the Michigan Craft Beverage Council. And it used to be in partnership with Michigan State University, where there's a big agriculture and grape growing winemaking department. The competition has spun off and is now run and organized by the Michigan Wine Collaborative. Mm-hmm. And this was the first year that they had their hands on on the competition. And their sort of uh, uh, approach was to not meddle up, but to really be stern, fair, call it how you see it. I love and that. And a lot of the judges really took that to heart. Yeah. I was sort of, I found it a little bit jarring in the beginning because I'm tasting these wines and, and I'm thinking, okay, well, this you know, this feels like a bronze or this feels like a silver or whatever it was. And, and some of the other judges, um, that I was either judging with or, or speaking to, they were just like, nope, nope. You know, they, they really want us to be honest. And these Michigan wineries, they need to know how, if they want to really know how their wines stack up to the rest of the country and the rest of the world, we can't be handing out medals. Mm -hmm. And it was, I gotta say, it was, I was just sort of used to a different approach. And I think that maybe ultimately the that there's not one right way to do things, that maybe there's a solution that exists somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. But I will say that that competition, they really wanted you to call it like you, like you saw it. And there, there was no walking around saying, uh, you're, you're, you're not given enough medals or you're giving too many medals. It mm-hmm. was a straight up assess the wine and you know if 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 the however many number of judges at the table you know if everybody was on a different page then 
that's just kind of how it was. And there were not enough, you know, votes for silver or votes for gold or, or whatever it may have been. Then, then the wine didn't get a medal or it didn't get as high a medal as maybe one judge thought it should, or, mm-hmm. or, you know, all sorts of different scenarios in the end. When you look at the results, I will say the results look similar to other competitions that, that I went, that I've you know looked at their end results. Mm-hmm. So, the the process was perhaps not um, the the key in determining what the results were going to be in terms of how many you know golds there would be, how many silvers, bronze, whatever. But for whatever reason, uh, that that was the intent of this competition, and I like it. If if they invite me back again, I'll sort of be a little bit more ready for that uh, from the get go, and mm-hmm. it's just interesting. And I feel like you maybe get a more honest assessment from everybody that's at the table, whether it's somebody that is really, really, really experienced and drinks, you know, only the most high-end Grand Cru Burgundy every day, <laughs> and that's how they're going to judge. Or it could be somebody who is rather new to the industry and has quite an open-minded palate and and, and sort of likes a lot of stuff. And that was sort of uh, what there was at this particular competition. So it was it was different in that I think because it was new, you had a new group of judges sort of assembled for the first time. And so that that was my takeaway from this one was okay, this is this is the first time for a competition. This is the first time that this particular group of judges is getting together for this competition, and. I, I think the results were cool and fair. I think there's going to be happy wineries. There's going to be disappointed wineries. That's just how it always goes, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a, a method to this way, and it and it stands to be done again next year. I, w- I would vote for that we keep doing it and not you know, going in any other direction. And I think that when you bring in judges from all sorts of different parts of the industry – uh, people that are younger, newer to the industry, people who are veterans, people who uh, are, work in different parts of the country. Uh, there were so many the uh, different. Um, it was a really, really diverse group of judges. You had people from big cities, people from the South, people from the Midwest, people from New York, uh, people all sorts of just different ethnicities and backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And that was for me the coolest part was spending time with these people in and around the competition. Mm-hmm. The assessment in the end, you know, I, I understand that these wineries all pay money to have their wines assessed, but no matter what, the wineries, they're getting name recognition. Every one of those judges is going to look at who submitted the wines in the end. They're going to look at who got the golds. Mm-hmm. A lot of these judges are buyers. You know, they're going to take note of the wines that they liked. Whether or not a wine gets a gold might not be the determining factor as to if one of these buyers is going to list that wine at their shop or restaurant or write about it or whatever it may be. Yeah. So I, I don't know that the medal or the score is necessarily the be all end all of a competition. I do think that there's something to assembling a very harmonious group of people for the sake of getting together to be around these wines. What do you think? Oh yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that's kind of, Part of the appeal for me is you're going to meet people in the industry in all different facets of the industry, and you're going to learn from them. I I love when I get to sit with a winemaker 
because, you know, as a wine journalist and, uh, you know, judge, reviewer, whatever, you know, I have like my certain set of skills, but I've never made wine. <laughs> so like, I almost feel like, I don't know, just like a hack, you know, it's like, I, I want to like soak up all their knowledge. So I, that's, that's my favorite, you know, person to sit from sit with and learn from at these competitions, but really you learn from everyone, someone who's a buyer, a psalm, um, everyone brings something else to the table. And, and also you just get to meet people that, you know, you might be friends with forever. So I, I don't know. Yeah. And my, what I question is if the best part of these competitions is assembling a very professional and diverse and cool group of people to get together around these wines, to break bread, to spend some time with one another with all these wines being sort of the centerpiece. Mm -hmm. I wonder, is that enough? To me, I think that that's pretty powerful. And I think that there will be a trickle-down effect to the benefit of all the wineries involved. But I bet the wineries probably want the medals, the scores, to the assessment to really be uh, front and center. And I understand that, but I... I don't know that that's right. And this brings me to my next question to you mm -hmm. is what do you hear from consumers in terms of who's paying attention to these competitions? So I don't know. In my mind, I wouldn't think that it, I don't know. I, I wouldn't think that consumers are really looking for medals too much, but from what I've read, they do apparently. Uh, I don't know. I, as much as I could gauge, I wouldn't, before I got into wine, I wouldn't look for medals. I wouldn't really know what those meant. But I guess, you know, someone like my mom, for instance, who knows, you know, the rigorous, you know, things that the judges go through to give a medal, um, she would be like, oh, you know, I know what this medal means. But for the average consumer, I don't know. Um, I've heard otherwise, but I... I think that it's more a way for a winery, you know, that's new on the scene to get some visibility or a winery that's, you know, big in their area that wants to expand into another state or another country, or maybe they're looking for a new importer, you know, I feel like that's the type of visibility metals help with. But I mean, I'm sure there are some consumers that are like, oh, well, look at this shiny thing. I, I, I'm going to go for it. I don't know. What do you think? So I think that once upon a time, competitions were more of a way for consumers to learn about wine because mm -hmm. I can remember when I was becoming interested in wine at first, seeing one competition in particular sticks out, which was like the San Francisco Chronicle yeah. competition. I feel like I used to see that all over the place. Mm -hmm. Like shelf talkers might might say gold medal from San Francisco Chronicle or whatever. And I, and that's, you know, that's really the only one that I can think of that is that that's a pretty big deal competition, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Now, other than that, I really don't know anything about that competition. I don't know who organizes it, who the judges are. I just remember back in the day, seeing that one around a fair amount. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, the New York, uh, wine and grape foundation competition known as the classic that you and I have both been a part of. Yep. Um, that's another one that at some point there was a lot of consumer attention in particular around the 
the wine regions and I want to say the Finger Lakes. I don't know how much people in the Hudson Valley or Long Island or the some of the other uh, grape growing areas pay attention, how much they pay attention to. I do know that around the Finger Lakes, if you're a winery that wins the top award, which they call the Governor's Cup, mm-hmm. that wine, you're going to sell that wine out. And then you're going to start selling out the next vintage of that wine. And, the, and, and then consumers up in that area, they're going to remember that you won that and they, they might buy that wine for the rest of their wine drinking life. Yeah. So I know that there was some power to that particular top prize of the competition. However, I've talked to wineries that would say they won the best in class, whether that was you know the best Cabernet Franc, the best Chardonnay, mm-hmm. and they didn't really see that a difference in their sales. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like unless, if you win that top one, you you're going to get some attention. It's going to sell. But after that, the sort of like other best in category medal winners. Yeah, not so much. The wi- some of the wineries that I've talked to have told me that they don't see much action as a result of of those of that recognition. But I would I do think that there was there was a time when the trade paid more attention to competitions because there typically would be a press release that would go out and you would see media coverage right. of the results of some of these competitions. In the New York Times, for example, you don't see that anymore. The New York Times is not covering no. the New York Wine and Grape Foundation competition. And I can tell you that in my time uh, working uh, for the for the New York Wine and Grape Foundation, the only member of the trade who asked me about the winner of the Governor's Cup was a wine buyer sommelier who was definitely above the age of 50 yeah and that person was paul greco (laughs) (laughs) Um, so so uh you know that there so i guess there could be some some buyers still out there but no one else has ever asked me oh who you know who won the competition yeah well i know you guys send out your own press release about the winners but yeah i don't know i guess like yeah, that top wine is obviously going to do well. Um, and I think what would behoove the organizers is to, you know, put a lot of PR behind like all of the winners, like um, Conqueror Mondial, for example, almost like, I don't want to say all of their meddling wines, but a lot of their meddling wines, they will write a short blurb and promote it across, you know, social media, press release, whatnot. And, you know, so it's, it's helpful to even bronze winners, you know? Uh, so I, I don't know, would that, is, would that kind of like make it more of a, a good move? I don't know, more, I don't know, interesting or helpful to the wineries if there was more of a PR push after the fact? I have some thoughts. I have some okay. thoughts on that. Uh, talking about how we might improve the various PR pushes for the aftermath of of wine competitions. So I think you're right. And I I have this feeling that if you put PR efforts into advertising or or plugging who the judges were, Mm because there's usually some fairly prestigious judges, well-known sommeliers or buyers or writers or whoever it is, um, or just, uh, you know, Present by presenting what the, uh, the various judges' jobs are, uh, I think will get 
consumers uh, well, could gain consumers trust in terms of, okay, this is the group of judges. These, this is the group of wines that got golds and silvers or, you know, nineties and 88s or whatever the, the scoring mechanism is. So, can, you know, pushing, pushing who the judges are and also maybe creating more of sort of a happening around it. So when I think of what kinds of wine events get coverage, Mm-hmm. It's things like La Paule, yeah, and you know Fête de la Champagne or whatever it's called, and uh, you know Antonio Galone's like big Barolo thing, uh, and these aren't competitions per se, but they are events, and a competition very much is an event. It's a, an opportunity to put a lot of prestigious trade together, hanging out, doing things. Obviously, you're judging and assessing and scoring wines. But you're also at lunches, you're at dinners, you're hearing presentations, um, and, and there's all sorts of stuff happening around these competitions where I think there's opportunity to create some sort of greater event around, like a La Palais that maybe involves a ticketed dinner for consumers to come and try some of these wines and things like that. Mm. And that certainly you know, gets New York Times coverage every year. Yes. Uh, the La Palais event and, and, and others like it. So by focusing on the, on the getting together of the prestigious group of trade and maybe even inviting some consumers in to, to be a part of it is a way to shine a spotlight that this important thing is happening, which might interest people a little bit more than, you know, a silver medal. That's a really good point. Uh, both points about introducing the judges, which most of them do, but you know, some could definitely do that more so. And yeah, an event for sure. Um, I it kind of made me think of uh, the Virginia Governor's Cup. They it's you know they do their judging, um, and you know obviously the there's the Governor's Cup, the highest rated wine, and then there's kind of a case of wine that are the other top medalists. So once, you know, those are released, not only do they have a gala, I'm not really sure how much consumers are involved though. I know the gala really focuses on media and other people in the wine industry. Um, but I'm not really sure about consumers. So there's the gala, but then they also reach out to media that maybe couldn't make the gala, but might be interested. And they're like, Hey, can I send you the, governor's cup case of wine and you know once a year you know wine media can easily know what's going on in virginia like the new and best things happening in virginia um because of this judging an event so it's pretty interesting yeah i i think that the the arranging of events after the competition so you, you know you have all your winners you have your your big winner, then you have your various best of class winners. If you arrange an event after the competition, it could be weeks, it could be months, whenever that is, the my fear there is turnout. I just fear, you know, that there's a, especially in a place like New York City or London where there are a zillion wine events every day. Right. I mean, well, at least when we were not in a pandemic. Right. <laughs> um, it is very difficult to get the trade to come out to things. So I think your best bet is to have the 
the whatever it is, the invite the trade to experience the winners or the the thing, the happening, or invite the consumers, whatever it is. Do it all around the the competition. You know, do it at the same time because yeah. that's you've already got everyone together. You've already got all the lines there. You lose momentum mm-hmm. if you if you wait to do it after the fact and you risk no one coming. For sure. Um, I don't remember what tasting this was, but it was years ago. It was a South African tasting, I believe. Um, and they're like, yeah, after the trade tasting, we invite consumers up and it's like a small fee and they can taste, you know, whatever they want. And it's like, you know, why waste all of these wines that are open? And I feel like that would be an amazing thing to do, especially for these regional wine competitions like uh, the New York Classic. You know, after the judges are done, invite consumers to taste some of it's like, oh, these are the best wines that the judges enjoyed the most today. Um, I and then no wine goes to waste. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, uh, you know, things like that can be can be tough to organize. It does, you know, the every extra little thing that you oh, yeah. add, you know, it, it, <clears throat> it just sucks up the bandwidth of the organizers. But I, I mean, I think it's you're, you're you're better off putting the effort to do it around around the the competition date than than doing it later. Yeah, and that tabling makes sense. it and then sort of reorganizing it. Yeah, I think you 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 do lose uh, some momentum. But you're right; there are a ton of open wines, and there's there there are opportunities to do things. But I want to just sort of try to come to some conclusion as as mm-hmm. we approach the hour here. Like, how can we make wine competitions a little bit cooler in the eyes of the trade and such that consumers will will get in the mood to pay attention to them again? Well, I mean, I can see where maybe some competitions have put a bad taste in, you know, a winemaker's mouth. Because, you know, some of them that you do have to deal with the, uh, the pushiness of meddling, you know, there's, there's some kind of like, eh, kind of icky behavior. So if just like you're saying about the, the judging in Michigan, if that is at the forefront and everyone knows this is how we're judging, you know, no BS, you know, this is a true assessment. I I think that's really cool. And I feel like winemakers should get behind that. So that's one way for sure. And yeah, building a, a whole event around the judging and maybe not even just dinners and whatnot. Like Concours Mondial, they fly 350 judges to a different location each year um, from all over the world. And, you know, it's a, it's like four day long event. You judge, you go to dinners, you go to wineries, you learn about the region there are, you know, specialists from the region that you're in that give seminars. So, well, I don't know how much that would really entice the the winemaker sending wine in, but it certainly makes the the competition cooler. <laughs> I don't know. I I guess those are my two my my two thoughts on that. What what do you think? You have any any other ideas? I mean, I think that it again, you know, we're we're not gonna we're not gonna come up with the answer today, but no. I, I I do think that it in general the the competition 
uh, culture needs more discourse, more formal discussion in, in how to make it such that we are doing due diligence to the wineries who submit, but also to consumers. I think it, my, my sort of revelation in this last year um, has been that we don't, I personally, for far too long was not thinking enough about the consumer. It's way too easy to get sucked into the wine trade to then only pay attention to those in the wine trade. Mm -hmm. I think so often I have been guilty of just talking to others like me and, you know, like you Mm -hmm. and not thinking enough about the masses of people who are really the ones who drive the industry. I mean, we can all sit around and talk about, you know, these these very prestigious and small production wines that are impossible to get and cost a fortune. But again, that's that's just a tiny 1% of people who are drinking wine. And that's really not all that helpful to do, but that seems to be what we do into the trade in the trade is we we fixate on our on things that that excite us or are you know rare and exotic or old or just very hard to get Mm -hmm. and it's easy to lose sight of that the masses of consumers are are thinking of and buying a completely different kind of wine and the and i think all the smartest buyers and and uh businesses do keep that in mind and and probably think more like that but it's again you know i can tell you firsthand uh you know there's a lot of sommeliers hanging out with other sommeliers watching videos of sommeliers <laughs> yeah totally uh, you know and, <laughs> it's, and it's an echo chamber for sure yeah yeah so i i have sort of found comfort in trying to think so much more about the consumer and i think that's where we may be a bit lost and a bit confused in terms of um, wine academia, wine education, wine criticism, and um, wine sales in general. And I think that no one really likes to talk about this anymore, or certainly those in the trade that are around my age or younger, but Robert Parker stood for one thing, and that was the consumer. That was it. There was Mm -hmm. never any confusion. If you can, if you're old enough to have come up reading, you know, the wine advocate and sort of understanding the culture that he created around wine, which first and foremost was the biggest thing that ever happened to wine. Nothing has come close to sort of touching that phenomenon that surrounded him in his glory days mm-hmm. uh, and that publication and the other people involved and and all of that. That was a monumental, uh, you know, earthquake in, in the industry, and I, and I don't think we've seen anything that big since, but it was, perhaps it was that big because it was clearly all about the consumer. Yeah. So that's been, that's been sort of just uh, refreshing, at least for me to, to go into to all these various endeavors, thinking more about the consumer and less about the trade. Yeah. Well, I guess it's probably really interesting for you at this time, because, you know, you've been in this industry for forever and you know now you're opening up a wine bar and you're making your own wine and you know you're probably the first thing you think about now is the consumer which i think is great because you're going to be a better you know wine judge wine you know 
reviewer, writer, whatever, when you do have the consumer in mind. Right. But I don't, I, I think about the consumer because I'm terrified. <laughs> I, I, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I I'm, I, I need to think about the consumer because I need to sell wine. Yeah. But I wonder if others maybe don't think about that because if you, it could be tempting to lean into the wines that various influential members of the trade are championing, whether at their own businesses or, or through social media, mm-hmm. and to stock your shelves with those kinds of wines because you see those particular influence influencers as being very visible. Right. And having a lot of presence, but do they really? You know, are there are there are there boots on the ground flocking to shops and restaurants to uh, obtain those wines, those very hard to get or complicated or 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 off the beaten path types of wines? And I do think there are businesses that open up and sort of rally around that style mm-hmm. of presenting wines. I'm too afraid to do that myself. Um, that doesn't mean that it doesn't work for others. Yeah. But, but you're right. I, I'm certainly going uh, down the path of wanting to have certainly wines that, that are going to work for the everyday wine drinker, the Tuesday night wine drinker, you know what I mean? As opposed to the wine that, you know, approaches a three digit price tag that really only members of the trade know about. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, it's still your wine. It's still, you know, going to be, you know, your preference from the wine knowledge that you've soaked up these years and years. But yeah, you do have to think about, well, I'm not the only one who's going to drink it. (laughs) Other people are going to be paying for it. Well, and what about, what about as a writer? You know, have you experienced uh, various uh, writing opportunities in that you had to either uh, really make it make an effort to write to the consumer or to write to the trade, depending on the publication. And what do you what do you prefer? Ah, uh, huh. That is a tough one. I would say you know in reviewing wine, uh, that's I guess it's for both the trade and the consumer, but. It's used a lot in shelf talkers. It'll have, you know, oh, like this write-up was in Wine Enthusiast. It got, you know, this score. Um, So I felt like that was more consumer-driven. And I enjoy that for sure. But I feel like when you are writing for the trade, you can get real dorky, which I also enjoy. So it really kind of depends. One thing I will say is that about championing these kind of, you know, hard to access or, you know, very small production or, you know, kind of like cool wines. I guess in a sense, if these people are influencing on social media, it there is a trickle down effect because then, you know, Psalms are going to get it, stores are going to get it, they're going to put it in the store and then, you know, the shopkeeper is excited about it and they're going to tell other people about it. I saw it firsthand when I was a buyer um, right before the pandemic. Uh, It was kind of like quirky little wine store, lots of natural wines and people come in and if they didn't know what they're looking for, but I had a general sense, you know, I would talk to them about like the Martha the uh, stewman post-fruitation that everyone had to have at that time or um, yeah, just what some of those small 
wineries and like, oh my gosh, I can't find this anywhere. And then it became a thing. Like this consumer that now knows about it is telling their friends about it. And all of a sudden the post-flirtation is gone. And so I guess there is kind of a trickle down effect for sure. But it's it certainly doesn't start with the consumer in mind. It might end there and it might be less, <laughs> you know, condensed or concentrated than it is focused on the industry, but it gets there a little bit. Well, I cannot believe that uh, this hour has already gone by. I could talk to you all day about this. Um, But just to wrap, I think that we we maybe both agree that competitions, we we need to keep exploring, Mm -hmm. but maybe they should be about the moment and not so much about the after. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, there's a lot of stuff I haven't even thought about, about competitions that we kind of hashed out today. So that was cool. All right. Well, we'll have to do, uh, we'll have to do this again after yeah. uh, the next round of competitions that, uh, that we're involved with. Sounds good. Cool. All right. Thank you, Carrie. Uh, always a pleasure to talk to you as always. And I'm sure I'll, uh, hopefully I'll run into you in, uh, in the real world very soon. Yeah. Uh, well, you, you know, I'll be coming to your wine bar. I'll keep you posted and we'll certainly be blabbing about that on the podcast here. Um, Thank you as always to Dave Miller, who is the musician and composer behind our theme music, our opening and closing music. Check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com or wherever you purchase our stream music. And Carrie, thanks again. We'll do this uh, after uh, some more competitions and I'll see you very soon out there. Sounds good. Bye. Thanks.